Okay, let's uh, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this journey we've been able to enjoy together going through this book of Revelation. Thank you, Lord, that your word tells us that there's a blessing for those that read this book and for, Lord, those that keep the things that are written therein. And so, Lord, as we come to the end of the the study, Lord, these verses this morning, help us to just try and comprehend as best as we can what these verses are telling us. And, Lord, what you intended us to understand from them. Lord, not just to gain information and knowledge and, Lord, how they should impact us, how they should change us, how they should, Lord, affect us in the way that we live our lives. And so, Father, we just give you this time now of study. Just take away any hardness, any preconceived ideas, anything that would stand in the way of you teaching us. Lord, I pray that this not be my words this morning, but that you would speak to us through your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 22 is an incredible chapter for, for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, it's the end of the Bible. This is the last of God's revelation to us. And everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is the complete revelation of God to mankind. Everything we need to know, everything we need to understand about this life, how to live this life, how to walk, the hope that we have for the future, all that's coming, all that's been in the past, everything that God wants us to know is contained in there. You know, it's just such a complete record of what God has done and dealt with regarding man. And we see, of course, that the central focus through the whole of the Bible is God's relationship with mankind. So we're going to dig in a little bit more this morning. Uh, the first thing, we talked about this briefly last week, but the mystery of God's will. You know, there's some scholars count nine, some twelve, but you know, there's at least nine mysteries you can find in the New Testament. Things where Paul typically would tell you, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a lot of scholars think that these are things that Paul received when he was called up to the third heaven. You remember Paul was in a situation, many people think it was at the time that he was dragged out of the city and left for dead stone. Some people even think that he may have died at that point and that God supernaturally brought him back to life. Others think that he just was knocked unconscious and so on. Either way, uh, Paul tells us that at some point in his life he was caught up to the third heaven. We read this at the end of 2 Corinthians. And he received things that were inexpressible. I mean, aren't you glad that it was John that wrote the book of Revelation and not Paul? Because if Paul had written it, he'd just gone, wait man, this is just, just too much, I can't, can't tell you. Whereas John gives us at least some of the details. But Paul does reveal to us some of the mysteries. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery, and goes on to explain. And it's not a something that's still a mystery, it's something that was once a mystery that now has been unveiled. But one of those is the mystery of God's will. And this is really important because so many people think, I wonder what God's will is. Well, this is the mystery of God's will. We read about it in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. And it just, the the words just, having made known unto us, is God has made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. In other words, this is because God wanted to do it, which he purposed in himself. God decided this, God chose to do it, and God has executed his plan. Every last detail. And he says, this is the mystery, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, as I said last week, my paraphrase of that is, when everything is said and done, at the end of the day, God's plan is this, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. You see, God started with Adam 
Eve. God's plan, of course, was that they would live sinless, that they wouldn't rebel and fall, and that we would have a wonderful eternity from then on. But, of course, God knew man's heart. And so Adam and Eve sinned, and they took of the fruit. They bring in this separation because of sin. God then introduces death as an incredible escape route. It may not seem that to you and I, but that's exactly what death was. Because God made a way for man to be redeemed. You see, by introducing death, God then accepted the death of a substitute in place of Adam and Eve to cover, to account for their sin, ultimately looking forward to Jesus who would one day pay for the sins of the whole world. And so God made a way for man to be brought back into a relationship with him. But you see, God originally gave us free choice. We've all had that, that ability to make our own decisions and people in life make their own decisions. But for those that have put their trust in Jesus, the decision they've made is to trust Jesus. To let go, as Oswald Chambers frequently writes and records, to, to give up the right to yourself. And that's exactly what God would have of us, that we lay down our claim to ourselves, and we say, you know what, I've had a go at steering this ship and I'm not very good at it. And so we hand over the keys, I'm mixing my metaphors, sorry, ships and keys and things, but, you know, you hand over the keys to, to Jesus and say, look, you, you, you take control. And for those that have done that, the eternity that awaits us is breathtaking. You see, we've been saved from God's wrath. You know, a lot of people, you ask the question, what have you been saved for? People say, oh, I've been saved from sin. Uh, sin wasn't after you. Sin was quite happy with you where you were. You've been saved from God's wrath. A number of scriptures speak of that. We've been redeemed. That word simply means to purchase back, to buy back something. We've been redeemed. Many uh, examples of scripture. We've been adopted. I mean, literally, as, as a parent would adopt a child, so God has adopted us and brought us into his family. And we've been given the rights of the firstborn. You see, we've been given his Holy Spirit, we've been born again. And we've been granted an inheritance that's out of this world, literally. You know, God has given us, because we have been adopted as his children, we've been given inheritance as if we were his very own. What does that inheritance look like? Well, uh, twice in the New Testament we find this word, a kleros, that's used in the Greek. And it's really speaking of a dividing up of an estate once somebody has died or, or come to that place where they're going to give it to their, their, their heirs. And it speaks of really the dividing up of God's estate, that we are beneficiaries of that, that God has divided up his estate and given to us of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy. And 14 times in the New Testament we find this word kleronomia, uh, which is airship, effectively. I, I like the, in the, the, the concordance it had the word kind of concretely. I mean, it's solid, something that's secure. A patrimony or a possession, but patrimony is simply an inheritance from one's father. That's what we've been given. We've been given an inheritance from God. You know, I'm sure you'd all like to find that you have a rich uncle or auntie that suddenly left you an inheritance that was yours. Well, you see, you've been invited to join, you've been adopted into God's family, and you now have this inheritance awaiting you. And it's just, sometimes we don't focus and think about this because we're so busy caught up in the here and now. But this is real. This is something that God has promised us. Many scriptures speak of this in Acts 20.32. 
And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Notice that which is able to give us that inheritance is the word of God. It's the word of his grace, able to build us up, to give us an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. So we all get to partake and benefit. Ephesians 1 verse 11 Carrying on from that verse we looked at a short time ago, but in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. So God's will was that he would bring together the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, God started with Adam, then we went on to choose a family. The family that God chose was Abraham's family, the Jewish nation, through whom the law was given, through whom Jesus came into the world, through whom the word of God was given. Israel have always been very special to God because he used them for a very specific purpose. But God's plan was never just to have Israel. He wanted to bring together all, the Jews, the Gentiles, male, female, rich, and poor, and bond, and free, and all the different types of shades you can possibly think of. God wanted to bring everything together in Christ. And he says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. God has chosen to do this. God wanted to do it. God's a father that has abundance beyond anything we can imagine, and he's chosen to give it to his children. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men. A great scripture just to make a memory verse, a life verse. Everything you do, don't, don't do it just for your boss or for your husband or for your wife or for your children, for your parents. Do it for God. Because he says, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. See, that's why we should live our lives and, and, and serve each other and, and work hard. And, and Christian employees should be good employees. I was very blessed in a situation some years ago. When I was working, uh, and I had a, another Christian was working alongside of me, and the boss came up to us at the time and said, you know what, he said, I think, I think in future I'm only going to ever employ Christians. What a lovely testimony. Because he saw that we worked hard. He saw that we didn't mess around during the working day, and when he left the office we didn't start playing around. That's, a test, that's the way we should be as Christians. We should be doing it, not because we're doing it for our earthly bosses, but because we're doing it for God. And why, why should we do it for God that way? Because we know that we're going to get a reward for it. You know, nobody's frightened or afraid of working if they know they're going to get reward for what they're doing. Well, we've been told that we've got a wonderful reward, an inheritance awaiting us. And this is in addition to our salvation. It's not just that we've been saved and that's the end of the deal. No, no, we've been saved, but that's just the first thing that God has because the eternity God is going to be pouring his blessings upon us and we'll be seeing all the, the wonders of God's grace and mercy. So what is our inheritance? Well, one of the things that's clearly outlined for us, and we started to look at this last week, is the new Jerusalem. This eternal city that we're going to get to live in. You know, again, it's like you've just suddenly been notified that you've been given this inheritance and you have title to this property. And it's not just some property, it's an incredible mansion with wonderful gardens and estates and everything. That, that's just an earthly picture, but God has given us something way better than that. In the last session we were looking and we saw the size of this city is going to be roughly 1,500 miles cubed. That's approximately the size of our moon. That's the size of this city. And in this city are going to dwell all those that have put their trust in Jesus Christ. 
The foundation stones are going to be these wonderful, precious gemstones, just shining and glistening. The walls are going to be somewhere around 400 feet thick, made, we're told, of solid jasper. Again, the light shining on these stones. I mean, natural eyes would probably struggle, which is why we're going to need these new heavenly bodies that the Bible speaks of. The city made of pure gold, we're told. It was uh, said that Tutankhamun's gold was estimated to be of more value than all of the rest of the world's gold reserves put together because it was so pure that you could see light through it. Well, the gold that's going to be in this city, we're told, is so pure that you can see light through it. It's just going to be, again, beyond our natural understanding at this stage. When we see this, it's just going to blow us away, I'm sure. Dr. Henry Morris, who's now with the Lord, made these comments in his commentary, looking at these things. He said, assuming that the entire population of the earth, from Adam to Noah, and then from Noah to the end of the millennium, will be no more than 80 billion people. Then adding another 20 billion to be generous, we would have a grand total of 100 billion people who have ever lived. He says, knowing that Jesus said that narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are that find it, let's assume that only a fifth of our 100 billion are saved. He says, the new Jerusalem would need to house those 20 billion people. This is what he calculated. He says, on that basis, if everyone inside the city has a mansion... And again, John 14, 2, we're told there, Jesus said, in my house are many mansions. And each mansion is fitted out just as you like it, with floor space covering some 75 acres. But imagine a cube that size. So how many floors could you get of that? I'm really not sure. And if we all had that much room, every one of us, every one of those 20 billion, there would still be three quarters of the city left for parks and water fountains and whatever else God chose to put there. By the way, there will be animals in heaven. The Bible speaks of animals, but these won't be the animals that we have on earth now. I'm sorry to say, but Ali and Monty are cats. They're not coming with us. Um, The Bible makes a very clear distinction between mankind and animals. Animals don't have an eternal soul. They have a spirit. They have a body. But when they die, the spirit goes back to God and their body goes down into the ground but they don't have a soul. Whereas we are very distinct and different. We'll look at that. It's one of the questions that came up and we'll talk about it at our Q&A in a couple of weeks' time in more detail. But there are, it does speak of, of certain animals that we'll find uh, there. So we'll, we'll, we'll just don't know what God's going to do and what he's going to create, but again, the scale of this city is going to be incredible. So let's look at chapter 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life. Clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, what we start to see is that in the new Jerusalem, there's lots of things that are, in a sense, the fulfillment of shadows or types that we've already seen on earth. This idea of the water throwing, flowing out from the throne, we actually see that with the Jerusalem on earth during the millennium. If you remember when Jesus comes back, he'll set his feet upon the Mount of Olives and it's going to be this earthquake and seemingly we end up with water flowing from Jerusalem out through the city and it goes down into the Dead Sea. And it's going to heal the Dead Sea and give it life again. So that's, that's kind of a picture that we see. But in the New Jerusalem, we in a sense get the fulfillment of that, the real, the real thing of which the others are just types in a sense. But we're told here, a pure river of water of life. So it's not just water, there's something intrinsically 
of much greater value to this substance of whatever it is, water of life. In Revelation 21 verse 6, in the previous chapter, we saw there, He said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Anybody that had any thirst, be able to drink from this water of life freely. And that may trigger in your mind the conversation that Jesus had at a place called Sychar. In John chapter 4, we read that there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. There was a well, a well that Jacob had dug many, many years before. And the Samaritans held this place as very important. And she's come out to draw water as they'd have had to do probably on a daily basis. And Jesus, who was a Jew, comes up and speaks this Samaritan, which was just a, a you just don't do that. The Jews and the Samaritans had this real um, disdain for each other. Largely went back to the time of the, the Syrian invasion when the northern kingdom were taken captive and, and then the Syrian king brought some of them back to live in the land and foreigners back, and not just the Jews, but and then brought back some of the Jewish priests to try and teach them the customs of the land. And so we had this kind of hybrid religion that uh, sprung up and that was uh, what the Samaritans held to. And, and so the Jews typically didn't speak to them, but Jesus now comes and says to give me to drink. We told for his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. And then the woman of Samaria said, said the woman said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of me? Which I'm a woman of Samaria. She says, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, it just highlights the problem. But Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So once again, this living water's reference. And Jesus is saying, look, if you knew who you were speaking to, rather than me asking you for a drink, you'd have asked me for living water. You see, straight away, Jesus is highlighting that this woman has a thirst. It's not just a natural thirst. It's a thirst that can't be satisfied by natural things. You know, she'd sought satisfaction, and we read of her account and the things that she'd been into in her life. Clearly, those things had not brought her satisfaction. And she's coming back to get this natural water to satisfy a natural thirst. But Jesus is speaking of something much bigger, much greater. Jesus speaks of something that is unattainable naturally. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then, how has this living water? She looks at Jesus and says... How can you offer me anything? You haven't got anything to draw with. He says, You greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. You see, this is the assumption so many of us make when we look at Jesus. Well, what has Jesus got that he can give me? You know, he's got nothing that, that I need. And we think that we've got to continue to strive to satisfy all of our needs and longings and, and desires and so on. If we work hard enough, we'll do something and that we'll be able to satisfy ourselves. And You see, we have no natural ability to enable us to draw spiritual water. It's a gift of God. And that's the deepest need that all of us have to be satisfied spiritually. All those natural longings really are just a symptom of a much greater problem. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Any natural water, you drink of it, you're going to be thirsty again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. And the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, 
Neither come here to draw. I mean, see, that which is natural can never quench our thirst. So already we're spiritual beings. We're temporarily residing in a physical frame. But we are spiritual beings. And really the question that she's kind of putting here, is, is this offer for real? Jesus, you're offering me something that is going to take away this longing and really putting an end to labor. She's saying, if you can give me something, that means I don't have to come back here day after day and draw water. I want it. Again, at this day she's still thinking in the natural, but that's the situation with so many of us. We look at Christ and we think, well, can he really satisfy? Maybe. So we kind of put it to one side and we carry on with our life anyway. But when we come to that place of realizing that Jesus can satisfy every longing, every need that we have, Christ really can put an end to our labor. She says, you know, look, so give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. I want to, I'm tired of this merry-go-round of life. You know, I don't know about you, but having a day job at times can be quite draining, can't it? And not the job itself, but just that monotony of always having to do the same thing. And year goes by, and year goes by, and you start to get older, and you start to look around and question the value, the meaning, the purpose of everything in life. You know, there was somebody on the train the other day, and the, the conductor came on the, the tannoy and made a special mention to this chap, that he'd been commuting for 35 years, and he was finally retiring. You know, and kind of people gave him a round of applause and everything else. It was all very nice, but... 35 years of the same old thing. And now what? You see, Christ comes to put an end to our, our labors. Not, just, not in the physical sense, but in a, in a much greater, deeper spiritual sense. You know, as a Christian, your labor can have purpose, it can have meaning. There's a reality that, that the world doesn't really perceive or understand. Another example we have of the water of life. In John 7, 37-38, this is incredible situation. There's, there's a seven feasts, specific feasts that are given to Moses that they have during the year. And the last day, the great day of the feast, and this is like the eighth day at the end of this time of feasting, referred to as the eighth day of assembly, Leviticus 23, 34 onwards, it tells us about that. But Jesus stood up and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture is said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Again, the source of this living water is Christ himself. Um, we kind of miss the, the situation here because we're not familiar with the history. And let me just share with you a little bit of what's going on. Well, first of all, this feast, again, the last, the great day of the feast it was referred to. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day of, of that celebration. And it was a feast that was specifically to remember the wanderings in the wilderness of the Jewish people. That was the idea of tabernacles. They would build these booths made of certain branches and so on. To remember the time when they camped in tents as a nation. They would do this every year. And during the feast, they'd pour out water in memory of the water that came from the rock in Horeb. You remember back in Exodus uh, chapter 18, I believe. The water of the rock, the water, Moses strikes a rock, water comes rushing out, and we've shown pictures of where we believe that rock is today, and evidence of lots of water in that place, in a place that hardly gets any rainfall. And this water comes pouring out. And so the Jews would... Every year, when they're in Jerusalem, start to celebrate like this. And they pour water out. They typically go down to the pool of Siloam. They get water. They take it up to the temple. And they pour it down from the altar. And it will come running down the streets. Again, in memory of this water that God had provided. But you see, the last day of the feast, they wouldn't draw water. 
And that was to indicate that the thirst was not yet satisfied, and i.e. that the Messiah had not yet come. That was their understanding. And so, for seven days they've been doing this. The last day now, they get to this eighth day, and nobody's doing this pouring water stuff. But they would read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. Let me read you the scripture that they would turn to. This is what they'd read. And you can imagine, just, just picture the scene. The, other, the high priest is standing there, with loads of crowds gathered round, and declaring this. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And as he gets to that point, everybody's silent and Jesus cries out, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. Well, everybody turns from looking at the high priest. They suddenly turn to Jesus. You can almost imagine the shock and the tension. And Jesus says, effectively, I am that one. Notice what he says. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And effectively, Jesus says, hi guys, here I am. And Jesus cries out and says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. You've been drinking this water, you've been celebrating that natural water, but I can give you something so much greater. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And verse 39, but this spake he of his spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Interesting that we're given a, an explanation here that the living water is synonymous with the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we get some sort of understanding that this water of life that's going to come down the street in the New Jerusalem is some way connected to the Holy Spirit. What we do know is that it's going to bring satisfaction. It's going to quench every thirst, every longing. Verse 2, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, there was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruit, and yielded a fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now we're introduced to this tree of life, a tree that we've seen a number of times through Scripture. In Proverbs we're given a little bit of detail referring to this tree. Wisdom, we're told, is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. Happy is everyone that retains her. So we're told that wisdom is this tree of life. But the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. And he that wins souls is wise. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. See, we've told already that wisdom is like a tree. Righteousness is as a tree of life. Hope is as a tree of life. And then finally, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. So things that are pure, things that are holy, all of this is described in this way of being like a tree that is life-giving. Now in the Garden of Eden, which is where we're first introduced to this tree of life, that tree offered eternal life. If you remember, we have the tree of life and we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to them, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what do they do? They eat of that one. Why didn't they go to the tree of life to start with? It's just us, isn't it? It's like children today. Don't touch. What do they do? As soon as you say, don't touch something, they touch something. You give them all the toys they can play with, they won't play with those. They'll play with the ones you say don't touch. 
So just as the fruit of the tree of knowledge and evil, knowledge of good and evil brought separation, so the tree of life would have brought eternal fellowship. But as a result of the fall, God sends these two cherubim to guard the ways of the tree of life because he doesn't want Adam and Eve to go now and take of this fruit in their fallen state. That would have been even worse, to stay in their fallen state forever, separated from God. That would have been a terrible thing. So God guards the way to the tree of life for now. In 1 John 5.12, we're told, He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. So life, real life, is linked intrinsically with our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're told that the fruit of the tree brings life and healing. Well, Jesus brings both of those things. So there's a definite correlation between Jesus himself and this tree of life. And just as with the tabernacle and temple, all that is in the New Jerusalem is actually going to reflect Jesus in one way, shape, or form or another. So we start to see this tree of life speaks of that which brings satisfaction. That which, again, brings peace. In the midst of the street of it, we're told on either side of the river there was a tree of life, which bare, we're told, these twelve manners of fruits and yielded a fruit every month. I'll just highlight this because it's an interesting thing. Because if there's every month, it means there's going to be some measure of time. And it also implies an annual cycle because we have these twelve months. Twelve fruits each month, twelve months. So we have some sort of year. A lot of people think that eternity, there's going to be no measure of time whatsoever. And yet this indicates that there will be. And part of the problem is, we go back to Revelation 10.6, you may remember when we were there. There's an angel that puts a foot on the sea and the land and says, time is no more. And some people have looked at that and said, well there you go, God stops time. No, God doesn't stop time. That verse means that time is up. That's what that verse means. That God is saying, right, enough, now judgment's coming. That's exactly what that verse tells us. So there's no verse that actually says that time itself will stop. You see, God is outside of time. But I'm not sure how we would function if we were outside of time entirely. And seemingly God, for his purposes, we still have some measure of time in eternity. Notice also that this tree of life is for healing of the nations. And you may think that's strange because there's not going to be any sickness or death or sorrow. So why do we need a tree that's for healings? Well... It's quite simple. The word in Greek here is therapia. It's where we get the word therapy. I imagine, I think of it this way. You know, sometimes you may go for therapy or we went away, Joy and I, for our 50th wedding anniversary. And we had various therapies that we, we had during that time. Um, relaxation, massages and so on. It was just nice. Not because we were sick, but it was just nice. It's just invigorating. And I think that's the idea. You know, you don't have to be sick to require therapy. I think the idea here is that, that throughout our, our time in eternity, that the leaves of this tree are going to be for the, for the therapy of the nations. And it does say specifically for the nations. So is this implying for those that are outside rather than those that are inside? Maybe. But literally, it's health-giving is the idea. The leaves of the tree are health-giving to keep us in this lovely, perfect state that God will put us in. Verse 3, and there should be no more curse. Should be good news for you gardeners. No more thorns, no more weeds growing up everywhere. You know, you put so much effort and time into growing flowers, but weeds just, just, just they're fine on their own, aren't they? But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. And they shall see his face. 
and his name shall be in their foreheads. I mean, this is just going to be wonderful. We can't imagine, really, a world without a curse, because we've known earth with a curse. Romans 8, we're told there, uh, verse 18 onwards, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, what it's saying is creation is waiting until we are made as we're going to be. This is for the creature, as creation, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. God has made this world such as it is with the expectation that there's something better. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. That's speaking of this time when everything is restored and God recreates the new heaven and the new earth. There won't be the curse, there won't be the problems. And again, I shall see his face. It's just, we're going to see his face before this time. But this is not saying that we will see his face at this point. This is, forevermore, we'll be able to see God's face. There's an incredible account, you look in the Old Testament with David and Absalom. You remember the account that um, Absalom had kind of fallen in love with one of his half-sisters and kind of a sordid situation really. As a result of all that, as it pans out, Absalom ends up, sorry, not Absalom, Absalom sorry, it was um, uh, Ammon, his brother had fallen in love with his half-sister, uh, who happened to be Ammon's full sister, Absalom's full sister. Absalom ends up killing Ammon as a result. And as, because of this, Absalom ends up fleeing. And he can't see David's face. And it's such a sad situation. And eventually David consents and says, well, okay, we can bring him back into the city. But then there's this really sad situation because Absalom effectively says, look, you brought me back, but I can't see your face. What's the point of me being here? And so we, we see the whole thing pan out. But you just get a glimpse there of, how important it is in a relationship to be able to see each other face to face. And the wonder of eternity for us is that we will be able to see the face of God. A face that no man has seen. You know, we're told in scripture that we can't see God's face. God is spirit. And, you know, there's various <coughs> portions in scripture where people look upon God, but they only see portions or parts. Moses saw the back of God. Elijah, again, the earthquake, wind and, and fire, and then he's a still small voice. Lots of occasions where we're told, of these things, but nobody's really seen God. Not yet. But we're going to see him for eternity, every day. You, you know you know what it's, it's like, it's just to, I don't know if you, you can think back uh, in relationships. You know, I remember certainly when I started going out with Joy, that wanting to be together. And of course, you know, I was living at home with mum and dad, she was living at home with her mum at the time, and You'd go to work and you'd come home and she wasn't there. So you'd kind of arrange to go and see her. And then when you get married, you get to see each other every day. And it's a wonderful thing. And sometimes in marriages you kind of take those things for granted. But what a wonderful thing where every day you can be with the one you love. Again, we're told, no more curse. Just read that verse from Romans 8. The curse was introduced in Genesis 3. And we're also told that 
They shall see his face. We shall see his face. In Psalm 17 verse 15, David said this, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. Notice again, we've got the the water of life that's going to bring satisfaction. We've got this tree that is going to satisfy and bring health and healing. And then just seeing Jesus' face, God's face. We should be satisfied, he says, when I awake with thy likeness. We're going to be transformed. These natural bodies are going to, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, are going to be transformed. Verse 5 again, there shall be no night there, and there shall be no need for the candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. The Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. We talked a bit about the light last time, but again they shall reign forever. This is a number of promises that are given to us for those that overcome, that we will reign with him. Just read some of these promises from the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation to the church of Ephesus, this promise was given. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I mean, this this wonderful tree we've just been trying our best to describe. And the promise is there that for those that overcome, you get to eat of the tree. Smyrna, the church there, this promise was given. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. For Pergamos, to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Thyatira, he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nation. Positions of authority and judgment. Sardis, we're told, he that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In the church of Philadelphia, to him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. The church of Laodicea, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. These promises given to those who overcome. Verse 6, and he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. We saw this last time, this idea. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Now remember that was kind of a what John uses in his introduction. That God has given this book to show us things that are about to come to pass. This isn't just some picture language. This is things that are going to happen. And God has specifically given us this revelation that we would know. Again, that's faithful and true. It means dependable, without fiction. It's not just symbolic. I mean, the tabernacle was full of symbolism and yet it was a real thing. The temple was full of symbolism and yet it's real. And no doubt there's symbolism in the New Jerusalem. But it's all real. It's all pointing to a reality. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. There's a account once of a, a preacher. He was speaking and he was going to preach on this verse and he started his sermon very boldly. Behold, I come quickly. And he couldn't remember the rest of the verse. And so he kind of backed up again. And he went, Behold, I come quickly. And again kind of froze. And this time he thought with real gusto he was going to go for it. And he charged into the lectern. He went, Behold, I come quickly. Toppled over the top of the lectern and fell on this chap in the front row. And he said, I'm so, so sorry. And the chap said, well, you warned me three times. <laughs> Apparently that was actually a true story. But um, Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. You know, we live in a world where we don't tend to think that Jesus is coming back quickly. We've got so used to the world carrying on day after day. And yet, things are changing, aren't they? 
You know, you think back to the Twin Towers, you think of 9-11 bombings, you think of France over the last 18 months. The world is changing. People are really starting to think that actually something is going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. You know, all the films that are being made, as I've said before, are all depicting some major climactic event. The world is gearing up for something. Jesus said he's coming quickly. Yeah, we must be ready. We're told also, blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Yeah, Revelation is a book of prophecy. I mean, that really answers the critics who would argue that it's just allegorical, because we're told here, it is a book of prophecy. These are foretelling future events. We're told, blessed is he that keeps the sayings. What are the sayings? Well... Particularly the instructions and the counsel that Jesus gives us in chapters 2 and 3. But throughout this book, there's instructions and commands to live righteously, to put your trust in Jesus Christ, to forsake the things of this world. And I, John, once again, it's as if John needs to say, yeah, this, is, this is me, your fellow brethren. John, who had, for many of the people that have read the original copy of this revelation, John is saying, Guys, it's me. I saw this. You know, if it would be like one of the, the members of this fellowship coming back and saying, look, it, it was me. I, I saw this. You know, somebody you knew that you trusted coming back and giving you this report. Well, that's what we've got it. John, the early church would have known John. John outlived all the other apostles. And he's saying, it's me. I, I saw this. I saw these things and I heard them. And when I had heard and seen, he says... Wow, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. John just in awe. But then, he said unto me, see thou not do it. In other words, the angel immediately stops John and says, don't worship me, because, he says, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophet. So this isn't an angel as we would think of an angel. Remember the word in the Greek that we have for angel is messenger, angelos. It just means messenger. So this individual at this point clearly is a messenger, somebody who's given John this information. And he says, don't worship me, I'm just another prophet. And I've kept the sayings of this book. He says, worship God, don't worship me. You know, we should not worship any man or any man-made system or anything. We only worship God. Uh, just to throw this aside, we mentioned this before, I wonder whether this could be Daniel. It's got to be somebody who's mentioned in the prophets. We're told that he's one of the prophets. I just wonder whether Daniel has been given this responsibility. Daniel is one of the only few people in scripture of which there's no sin recorded. That's not to say that he was sinless, but there's no sin recorded for Daniel. Just a wonderful man that loved and served God from the beginning to the end of his life. And maybe Daniel now has been given this privilege. He's, He's one of the prophets, whoever this is, is now revealing these things to John. And he said unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now that's interesting because back in Daniel, around about 550 BC, as Daniel gets his revelation, and the information he's told about a lot of these things, Daniel's told, seal it up for now. Because it's not yet. But now, Daniel says, or whoever this prophet is that speaketh John, he says, don't seal this up. This is now, this is for, for everybody. This record has got to be open to all. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. What is his first saying? Well, I I think he's saying this, that there's coming a day when all the decisions are going to be made. 
You know, cast your mind back to Exodus, the situation with Pharaoh. We're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, some people look at that and think, well, that's not fair. No, no, if we understand what God was saying, you look at what the, the, the Hebrew text implies, God confirmed Pharaoh's heart in the position that it was in him. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart. God just said, okay, that's, that's what you are. You know, Pharaoh's voted, effectively. He's cast his, his decision and said, this is where I stand. And God said, okay, that's where you stand. I think what's going to happen here is that those that are unjust, there's going to come a day when that's it. There won't be any more changing of sides. There won't be any more repenting. Those that are filthy. Again, that place where they will just stay in the state they are. They've chosen their lifestyle. They've chosen the way they want to live. But also for those that are righteous. What a wonderful thing. Let it be righteous still. I think he's saying that for those that are righteous, for those that are holy, you wanted it, you've got it for eternity. I mean, for, for those that are righteous and holy, this is a great thing. For those that are unjust and, and filthy and so on, what a dreadful thing. To suddenly find that God has actually given you what you wanted. You know, we, we see it with children, don't we, so often. And normally, chocolate's a great way of, of seeing it. If you would let children eat as much chocolate as they would like to eat, they would become very sick. Some adults are, are like that as well. But you know, there's a limit to how much you should or shouldn't take of certain things. And God has clearly said in scripture that, that things should be taken in moderation. I mean, it just, gluttony is not a good thing. And it's the same when it comes to the desires and the lusts of the flesh. You know, people think they want as much as they can have and they're going to come to a place where they realize actually they should have listened to the Heavenly Father. You see, every desire we have, in essence, is not wrong, it's not bad. Those things are placed there by God, but God has given us a framework in which to use and express those things. What a wonderful thing, again, for those that are righteous, that God says, that's how you will remain for eternity. For those that are holy, that's how you'll stay eternity. That's just wonderful. You, you know what it's like. It's just a very poor analogy. But you know, when you've been out maybe doing some, some manual labour, uh, some of you can just imagine what that's like. But, you know, you, you kind of end up hot and sweaty. You go and take a shower and you come out and you're clean. That's a poor analogy, but just, you know, in a spiritual sense, we're going to be clean for eternity. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. This is lovely. God is saying, I'm going to bring my reward. This, this, Inheritance that we've been speaking about to give every man according to his work. You know, because Christians are going to be judged according to our work. We're going to be rewarded according to things that we've done. Whether we've sown to the spirit or to the flesh, whether we've built with gold, silver, precious stones, as first Corinthians three tells us, or wood, hay, and stubble, things of this world or things of God's. If we've done things for the kingdom, if we've sought first the kingdom of God, well then we're going to be rewarded. But the, see, the world also is going to be judged according to their works. This is my reward is with me. And some people's reward will be judgment. It will be the wrath of God. Verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We've looked at this. We looked at it, in, I think, in the opening few sessions, of probably chapter 1. And look back in Isaiah. There's so many scriptures in Isaiah that speak of God being the first and the last. There is no other. And yet in opening, the opening chapter of Revelation, Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You can't get away from the fact that the scriptures declare that Jesus is God. 
I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I mean, any authority, any rule, any system of mankind at this point has no more validity, no more argument. Because God says, I am the beginning and I'm the end. Verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Again, just this blessing pronounced upon all those who have access into the city. So we three surprises in heaven, it's been said. Firstly, those who are not there. When we get there, we look around and we'll be surprised at some of the people we thought may have been there, people that we perceive to be religious, maybe. They won't be there. Another surprise is those that are there. And we look around and think, I'm surprised you're here. And then the third surprise is the fact that you are there. And all of those, I'm sure, will be quite a, a shocker to us. You know, no doubt you'll go up to somebody and say, I, I'm really surprised to see you here. And I say, I was just about to say the same. You know, I think probably for most of us, the surprise still will be that we are there. Because we didn't earn it. It's not because we were really good at something or we had something that God needed or wanted that God said, okay, you, you come in. It's not like one of those lineups at school when you're picking your teams and you're always going to pick the, the best people for your team. And that God picked you because you had something that was really valuable for him. No, you were the last in the queue. You had nothing and God said, I love you, come. You know, just as the children of Israel, when they moved into the promised land, God said to them, I'm going to give you houses that you've not built. You know, crops and things that you've not planted or sown. I'm going to give you all of this. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. And God says to us that he's going to give us all of these things. We're told verse 15, for without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. You know, the list of these things, dogs typically in scripture refer to the Gentiles because they were considered unclean. But it's also used in scripture to apply to homosexuality. Sorcerers, again, we said last time the word in Greek is pharmakia, has this implication of the dependence on drugs. And partly because they can open the door to all sorts of demonic activity, altered states of consciousness and so on. That's why there's that link to sorcery as we perceive it today. Whoremongers, the, the word again, all those who are sexually immoral, or approve of those who are sexually immoral. In the book of Romans, it speaks not only of those who do those things, but those that take pleasure in those that do them. Of course, murderers, we understand that, but murder, according to Matthew 5.22, is in the heart. It's not the outward act. It's again, back to the Garden of Eden, the fruit and the tree. At what point did Eve sin? Was it when she took a bite of that fruit? No. Was it when she reached out and kind of plucked it off the tree? No, it wasn't. It was the moment that she decided in her heart that she was going to take it. The rest of it was just the outworking. And that's why God says that the murder is, is in the heart. That adultery begins in the heart. The other things, they're just the outworking of what really you've already decided in your heart. That's why Jeremiah tells us the heart is desperately or incurably wicked. And why David prays in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God. Don't don't just patch it up a bit. Replace it. Give me a new heart. 
And God promises to give us a new heart. He speaks of Israel of taking out their stony hearts and giving them a new heart of flesh. A heart that is tender towards him. Of course, idolaters, those who have made a God to suit themselves. There's so many ways we could expound that. And whosoever loves and makes a lie. You know, and that's the whole world. I, you know, I think one estimate was that the average person today tells 2,000 lies a day. That was one estimate. Yeah, just, we do it though, all the time. People, how are you? I'm oh, fine. This is your first lie. See, God is a God who demands truth. And we can't attain to those standards naturally. That's why we have to have a saviour. Because you know, the problem is, we look at a list like this in Revelation 22.15, and actually our names are written all over that. And yet at the same time, they're then washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Because we're of that group that are privileged and blessed to be enter, entering into the city. Again, not because of our own abilities, but because of his grace. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. There's so much more we could go off to and study in regard to these things. But just simply, Jesus is that one who was descended from David, the promised Messiah. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. I love this, you know, this isn't just the Spirit urging people to come. It's the Spirit and the Bride saying, come. Look, you know, some of us get caught up with this whole idea of evangelism. But what a privilege here, if you look at it in the context. You know, we've got this wonderful eternity awaiting us. This wonderful inheritance. And what we're told here is that the Bride is saying, come, come and join us. You know, there's no intellectual arguments in the sense that are presented at this point. It's just a come and see. You know, in the beginning of John's Gospel, you have an account with Philip and Nathaniel and, and the others there. And, you know, and it's just, come and see Jesus. And that's really all they're doing. They're just introducing Jesus. You know, they don't try and give this long list of apologetics and reasons why somebody should come and trying to prove everything and... No, just, just come and see Jesus. And that's what we need to be doing. Just saying to people, come and see. Come. And notice also though, it's not just the bride, it's not just us saying, but it is the Holy Spirit. And there are many people that we know that don't yet know the Lord. Oh, praise God for this verse. Because it doesn't just say the bride is saying come, but it's saying the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is calling people. And that's why you and I need to continue to pray. For our loved ones that don't yet know the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit is calling people. There's a book on the back table by a chap who was at the pastor's conference this year. By the name of Daniel Messiah. He was held captive in Egypt. And the book very much is his testimony. Of as a Christian how the authorities, the system didn't like him. He was a Muslim, he became a Christian. But he speaks of a number of occasions where... Muslims have come to know the Lord just because they felt God calling them. They felt Jesus calling them. And I'm sure you've heard some of those accounts and those those stories going around. Maybe your own testimony was such that you just knew that God was calling. It wasn't because some believer said something specific to you. It's because you knew God was calling. Well, the Spirit says, come. So let us keep praying for our loved ones. Let's keep praying for them. Because God has not given up on them yet. And at him, 
that he is say come. And I'm sure that as we get closer and closer to this day, we'll see this, that we will be calling people to come. Come and see, come and see Jesus. Come and see all that is awaiting us. The Holy Spirit is calling people, and then as people come, the people that hear that, they will say, come. Oh, I pray you for a revival. I pray that people would come in their droves. And let him that is a thirst come. Why? Because everything in this city, everything in eternity is there to meet and satisfy every need, every thirst. Let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely, abundantly. From the very first page of the Bible to the last, that invitation is there to come to Jesus. Verse 18 then. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of this prophecy, or sorry, of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the prophecy, or sorry, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, next week I'm going to take this verse and I want to unpack it a little bit more. Because I think there's a few Wonderful things that we need to just explore. And we haven't the time to do so this morning. So we'll come back to that next week. But the Bible, the book of Revelation closes and says, He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Speaking of Jesus. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And that wonderful ending, the grace. Because that's what it's all about. It was all about grace. Yeah, God's will, the mystery of God's will, that he would bring everything together in Christ, both which is in heaven, which is in earth, those that have gone before us, the Old Testament saints, all those that believe, that put their trust in Jesus, all have done so on the basis of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. One simple way of remembering what grace really is. God's riches at Christ's expense. Given to us freely. Can't earn it. Don't deserve it. Just have to accept it and say thank you. Thank you, Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, it's done. All debts have been paid. All judgments have been completed. All promises have been fulfilled. All sorrow has been comforted. All longings have been appeased. All desire has been satisfied. You know, it's no wonder that Abraham was content to dwell in tents for now. Because that is what is coming. Just in closing, I want to just share with you a story, an account, a true story. There was a couple who had been missionaries, they have been overseas for many, many years, and they got to the stage that their health was failing them, and they realised that they couldn't continue in the mission field, so they decided to go back home. And they got on board a ship, and they were travelling back home, and it just so happened that on board the ship there was a dignitary, an American dignitary who was well-known, a government official, and his wife. But over the couple of weeks as they were having this journey back to America on board the ship, they got to witness really a little bit of this character. And he was a very unpleasant individual, very foul mouthed, very flirtatious with people other than his wife. And really they were just just appalled at his behaviour. But they got even more disheartened when they get back finally to New York. They get there. And they find that there's a band that was waiting. And there's a whole entourage of people that have gathered and a crowd that's gathered to greet this politician. 
and his wife. And as they disembarked from the ship, somebody went up to the politician's wife and gave her flowers. And, and they went off and picked up in their car. And This old elderly couple then disembarked the ship. And as they're just walking away, on their own, nobody there to meet them. They've been away for many, many years in service. The husband just turned to his wife and she had a tear rolling down his cheek. And she said, what's wrong? What's the matter? And he said, look, my whole life I've given to serving Christ. You know, we've given even our, our health in the service of God to minister the gospel. And we've come back now and this country that once was built on Christian valleys, there's not a single soul here to greet us. And nobody's come to give you flowers. His wife just stopped and thought for a minute. And she looked at him and said, Honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. You know, for you and I, whatever strugglings and strivings and pain and sorrow we experience now, we're not home yet. This isn't home. There is something so much better awaiting us. Our inheritance. It's not something you have to hope you might get. You have been promised it by God. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction. That's what we're going through now. It's just light affliction. And it is just for a moment, works for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we are in awe of a God who has put together such an incredible plan that from before the foundation of the world, you had foreordained that we would spend an eternity with you, the created in harmony with the creator, face to face. Oh Lord, we thank you. We really truly thank you this morning and pray that you impress these things upon our hearts and minds, that we would... Lord, let them be as a light before us, a lead and guide, Lord, shining ever more unto the perfect day, as your word says. Father, help us to live our lives for you now, to do everything as unto the Lord, because we know we have this inheritance awaiting us. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. And Father, for those that don't know, for those at the moment have not yet put their trust in Jesus, oh, Father, we pray that you would call them. Lord, as your bride... Help us to continue to say, come. The Holy Spirit, speak to every heart, all those, whosoever will, and say, come. Come to Jesus. For Lord, we want to see a multitude saved. A multitude there to worship and praise and bring glory to you. We just thank you for these things now. Bless us as we go, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.